Our passage this morning is Ephesians 4, and it starts with verse 17, and it goes through verse 24, and I was hoping that somebody might read that for me, because I'll be doing a lot of talking otherwise. 17 through 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the light of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Thank you. Awesome. So, <clears throat> I've got quite a bit of information here. Um, so, truthfully, I, I put some, I kind of read through this, I listened to several sermons, I um, did a lot of digging, and really didn't have a whole lot of time to try to take my raw thoughts and make them super concise. So, um, I will say in that way, probably not as prepared as I have been in other ways, um, so bear with me. But I have sort of broken this up into somewhat of, a, somewhat of an introduction and context to this passage, and then I want to talk a little bit about um, essentially the old walk, what the old walk looks like, and then what the new walk looks like, so kind of in three larger chunks. So to start with an introduction, so we're talking about the, the change of a nature, right? Um, when we receive Christ, when we're born again, and when we enter into God's kingdom, we are totally different. We are completely changed, right? The change that occurs when you become saved is actually more dramatic uh, than the change that will occur when you die, right? Um, when you die, you already have this new nature, and you're already uh, a citizen of God's kingdom. All death does is enable you to enter that kingdom or into God's presence. <clears throat> so this change from the old to the new is a pretty dramatic uh, change in that it's a change of your nature. Now, we'll get into some of the specifics of that. Um, one of the things that I grew up with was this sort of, because I grew up in the church and because it was something that uh, I spent a lot of time in, I was born and raised in the church, there came a point where I almost like questioned my conversion because I didn't have this dramatic story of like, well, I was living on the streets, completely destitute, and I had a needle in my arm, and then an angel came down, and I saw the light, and I did it, you know, just... And have that story, right? And so there's almost this question of like, have I really been changed? Like, what's really different? Um, and so we'll get into a little bit of some of that. Um, so when I say that there's this radical change from the old way to the new, from the old to the new, uh, heart of flesh, heart of stone, uh, don't necessarily look at only these sort of external factors. Um, because this change is a change of nature, which goes even deeper than just the external. Now, the external matters, the external happens, um, but simply to say that the change that happens within us when we become a believer uh, is heavily internal, and then it flows into the external. Um, so I want to talk about a little bit about the character of newness. Uh, would somebody mind reading Romans 6, verse 4? <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you. 
Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What are the last three words there? Newness of life. Newness of life. <clears throat> so in this epistles, Paul tells us that we have been given a new will, a new mind, a new heart, power, knowledge, wisdom, perception, understanding, inheritance, righteousness, love, desire, and citizenship. Those are the things that we are being given when we become new in Christ. So when we talk about the newness of life, everything about us changes. Now, some may teach, um, I can't give you any concrete examples, this is just more anecdotally in my experience, that when we become believers, that something new is added to us. That something is added in addition to our old sin nature. But based off that scripture we just read, do we really believe that to be true? Do we believe that something has been added to us? Or do we believe that we have been transformed? I would say that based off what we read in scripture, it's not that we're being added to, that there's some addition of. It's that you are completely transformed. You are completely made new. Um, so again, this isn't a matter of addition. This is a matter of transformation. And in that same area in Romans, we have died to sin. Yeah. Right? We've been baptized into Christ. Right? So if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection. Yeah. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing yeah. so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there is some uh, totality yeah. to that language. There is some finality to that language. Um, if we participate in a death and resurrection like his, then I think it's safe to say um, this, this change, this newness, right, is not a newness that's added to something existing. What existed has been completely erased and is completely gone and has been replaced by something completely new. Now, to get back to what I mentioned a little bit earlier, right? This kind of raises the question in our minds, right? It, it does for me, I hope it does for you guys as well. Um, if I'm so new, if I'm, a, if I'm a new creation, right? If this reality is true, why do I still sin? Why do I continue in my sin? Please tell me I'm not the only one that questions this. <laughs> You're not the only one. Okay. <laughs> Good. Thank you. Uh, can somebody read Romans 7, uh, verses 17 and 18? So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then even to take it further, 19 and 20, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, do it but sin that dwells within me. So we have this question, right? If there's been this transformation, 
if, as you said, we participate in a death and resurrection like his, there is this newness of life, there is this transformation, then why, why do we still sin? Why do we continue on in sin as if we don't have that newness? Is it more of the spiritual versus the physical? Like, you know, spiritually we were dead and now we are alive, but our physical body is still um, riddled with sin, yeah. you know? And in, um, we, we didn't, you know, just ping a new body, right? We still have our old flesh. Yeah. You know? That's exactly why. Um, somebody put, let me see, I don't, I don't, this quote's unattributed, sorry. Uh, it says, sin dwells in my humanness. The smelly coat that my new nature has to endure until it goes to be with the Lord. What we need to do is get rid of that coat. In 1 Peter 2.1, the Greek word translated laying aside literally means to strip off clothes. So we are to take off the dirty clothes of our flesh and throw them away. So this transformation that happens is an internal transformation. It's a renewing of our mind and spirit. Um, all these new things in Christ are ours. And yet, we are still, we still have this body of flesh. And so, um, even though we are transformed um, internally in the, in, in the spirit, we will still see sin in our lives. We still struggle with that. Um, it doesn't have to define us. Because of the spirit, we can actually resist sin and begin to mortify sin. We, we can begin to fight it, um, but that it will never actually be totally gone from our lives, this side of glory. When we become Christians, we are not remodeled, nor are we added to, we are transformed. Um, so a Christian um, shouldn't have two natures. He has one new nature which is the new nature in Christ. The old self dies and the new self lives. They do not coexist. The new nature is righteous, holy, and sanctified because Christ lives in us. Would somebody mind reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23? While someone's looking for that, just to clarify that righteousness is an alien righteousness. It's Correct. Not, not a righteousness of our own. It's not a self-generated righteousness. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Is that correct? Yeah. So, well, sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Yeah. Yeah. So we have this, uh, what Peter calls the incorruptible seed, right? Um, somebody read Colossians 1. Verses 27. Colossians one twenty-seven. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this new nature is glorious, is righteous, holy and sanctified because Christ is in us. Again, going back to Damien, kind of what you alluded to is this, that righteousness being alien. These things are true. This transformation is true of us because Christ is in us. So when we talk about this transformation, we're not talking about something that's self-will or self-generated. 
of course, we're all talking about this. We're talking about all these things in the context of being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to make sure that's clear. Because this passage is, um, when we talk about particularly taking off the old self and putting on the new self, this is more of an uh, imperative. This is more of a command. This is more of that sort of language than it is, here's this truth that we live in, right? That's kind of earlier in the chapter. That's, that's earlier in Ephesians. We're sort of moving into this um, section of the epistle where it's, it has more of that do this kind of language. So we want to make sure that we understand that the do this is there and important and we should do it, but that it's not in and of our own strength and power. It is because of Christ in us, because of the Holy Spirit. Which is just the, presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Really helps clarify that the, the waging war that we feel between the flesh and the spirit. Yeah. Because it's, you know, even with being given the, the Ten Commandments, there's no power in the Ten Commandments to actually obey. It's the Holy Spirit that then gives us the strength and the power to obey. Now, in this life, before glory, we do that imperfectly. Yeah. But before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there's there's no way to even, there, there's no uh, power to even move forward in, those, in that direction. Right. It's not even a, there's not not only not a power, there's not even a desire. Yeah. There's only a desire for wickedness. Josh? Back in Doug's class, he would tell us not to bury lead. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like news, think of the news, right? Like, what's the headline of the passage? Yeah. And it's like, where are we at in this book? We're, we're more than halfway now, and we're yeah. just now getting to what we're required to do. Yeah. Um, not that you can't find things that we're supposed to do in the earlier chapters, but it's definitely not the focus or the point of it. Yeah, exactly. All right. So real quick, I wanted to talk about a little bit about why Paul... Uh, why Paul is writing what he's writing, particularly in the context of the time and what's going on. This may have been covered in other Sunday school classes. Um, I didn't have the chance to go back and listen. So if this is um, a repeat of something that's already been said, you know, please forgive me. But um, essentially, the culture of Ephesus in Paul's day, um, it was one of the most uh, dissolute and evil cities in Asia Minor. Um, Ephesus served as a religious center, had multiple temples, multiple idols. Um, it was a, a huge and particular focus on the goddess Diana, the Greek god Artemis. Um, these are these are ugly caricatures. They're often represented by an ugly, multi-breasted, evil-faced sort of um, beastly type caricature. Um, the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, and it was more than just a religious center. It was uh, a museum with some of the world's largest collections of art. Um, there was a very large asylum for criminals. It had the greatest bank in the world at the time. Um, there was a lot going on here. Um, Diana was worshipped as a sex goddess. Scores of eunuchs, priests, temple prostitutes, singers, and dancers led the people in worship, and they led people in worship of Diana, not the one true God. Um, I won't get into all the licentiousness here, but um, simply to say that Ephesus was not a good place at this point in time. There was a lot of uh, evil happening here. There was a lot of um, a lot of activity and general existence that is an antithesis 
to who God is and what God wants, right? Uh, I think it's safe to say that during this time, Ephesus was sort of a cesspool. It was a pretty vile and sinful world that the believers in Ephesus had to live in and live through, which is why Paul is urging them to be different, right? This is why there's this exhortation in this passage to live differently, because what they are living in, what is around them, is absolute madness, absolute sickness and sin. And so there's this very strong exhortation to live differently than the Gentiles do because the Gentiles there are very lost, right? Um, What's interesting there is I think there's a lot of, you know, maybe not to the same degree, but there are parallels, I think, um, to sort of where we are in, in our culture. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of, things happening in our world and in our in our um, in our lives that are anti-god that are the antithesis of the good things that we see in scripture um so not not necessarily to the same degree but just i say that to say that this this is somewhat a timely exhortation right i think generally speaking when you are when you are a believer when you trust in christ that is a countercultural thing it is always going to be countercultural. Uh, but I found this passage to be quite um, quite helpful, just given where we are. Just this reminder of the fact that we have been made new, the fact that we have this old life that we can put aside and this new life that we can put on uh, was really helpful um, and really encouraging to me. So I want to stop there. Any thoughts real quick? Any questions? Any? I don't want to just talk. Um, any questions so far? Any any things to add? All right. <clears throat> well, let's discuss really quick. Um, let's look at the old walk. Um, So if we look at verses 17 through 24, which is our passage for today, and I sort of lost it. Give me one second. There we go. Uh, Verses 17 and 18 and 19, uh, they talk about the old walk, right? And then uh, 20 through 24 kind of concern the new walk. Um, So we'll kind of break it down in that way and um, discuss those things. All right, so let's start with the old walk. So as we look at verses 17 through 19, um, and honestly through 24, right, one of the key issues here that Paul sort of addresses is how people think, right? So as we've talked about, there's a lot of these external realities that are kind of in play here that should be considered both in the old and the new. But a lot of this concerns the internal, and how we think. So there's a lot of language in here that references how certain people think when they're in the old old way of life and when they're in the new. So that's a, that's a key here is, is the mind, how people think. In verse 17, Paul says that unregenerate people live in the vanity of their mind. He also speaks of understanding and ignorance in verse 18. He speaks of learning and teaching in verses 20 through 21 and mind and truth in verses 23 and 24. So there's a lot here having to do with how you think, right? Proverbs 23, 7 says, As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. 
So when Christians think differently, they will act differently. So having said that, I want to uh, kind of go into what I what I saw as sort of the the four elements that characterize the thinking of an unbeliever or the old way of life. Um, so let's look at verses 17 again. Uh, what we see here is some self-centeredness. That ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. What's important to unbelievers, those not in Christ, is their mind, their thinking, their desires, and their whims. Whatever they think and whatever they want governs their behavior. Ephesians 2.3 says that when we were unbelievers, we, had, we all had our manner of life in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. <clears throat> Paul characterized this self-centeredness of unbelievers as vanity. Um, defined further, uh, you could say that as that which is empty, futile, useless, or vain. So when we think of vanity, we think of things that are empty, futile, useless, or vain. Um, what Paul's kind of saying here is that this way of thinking, this old way of thinking, right, this pagan way of thinking is useless because it accomplishes nothing. Consider Solomon for a minute. Solomon was one of the wisest and richest men in the world. He had more prestige than any others. And yet he summed up, he of all people, summed up life this way in Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. <clears throat> so even a man like Solomon, who had all the wisdom and riches in the world, who had more prestige and honor than any other, summed up life in that way. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So when we look at unbelievers in the vanity of their mind, we think about how it's tragic, how people will exhaust their money, their bodies, their minds, trying to find meaning in life, only they never find it. Their thinking is empty and useless and it accomplishes nothing. John 15, 5 says, without me, ye can do nothing, which is Jesus speaking. Any thoughts there? Clarifications. And this is what you see at the very beginning at Genesis 3, where Eve, Eve looks at the forbidden fruit and says, you know, that looks like it's good, that like it's tasty. That looks like uh, it could make me wise. Uh, it's a delight to my eyes. And it's, it's right there, that choice um, over God and communion, glorifying and enjoying him forever which is what we were created for. And she looks over at this, the vanity of what she wants in the here and now. What would, what would delight her, her uh, flesh at this time? And that's what we, what we do throughout the rest of history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It talks about being alienated from the life of God. Uh, this makes me think about how it's like scripture tells us that you know we all know that God exists his, his attributes are clearly visible and yet we refuse to acknowledge him uh, I forget where it says that but 
there's just really strong language here. The futility yeah. of the mind. It's like these are the Greeks, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, people that are known for <clears throat> seeking wisdom and in Acts, he's talk, they talk about a, you know, we'll, we'll hear these things and consider them. Yeah. <clears throat> there are people that in their own eyes are very wise. Um, and there's a comfort in that for them, in their own wisdom. Um, but as we're seeing here, the way that, that Paul describes it in this passage is that this kind of thinking, um, without Christ, this kind of thinking is, it's, it's complete vanity. It's completely useless. So all this wisdom of the world that the Greeks had, the philosophers had, the Stoics and whoever, not just in that time, but over time, there's sort of a futility um, to that wisdom. There is a futility in that without Christ, those things, that way of thinking means nothing and accomplishes nothing. Um, verse 18 um, I sort of had these subheads real quick and maybe helpful if I just kind of give them to you in advance and we can talk through them. So sort of the four ways of thinking that characterize this old way of walking, excuse me, this old walk, is what we just talked about in verse 17 is a self-centeredness, is there is an ignorance in verse 18. Verse 19, we see shamelessness. And D, D, sorry, verse 19, we see perversion. My notes are very scattered. So moving into verse 18, let's look at um, uh, what I'm describing here as ignorance. So having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. <clears throat> so it's difficult, right, to face people who don't know Christ and on any level try to explain to them their ignorance, right? One, you, we don't just walk up to people and say, hey, you're ignorant. That's obviously a very unkind and unwise thing to do. But that's essentially, that's essentially what characterizes some of this thinking, the way that we used to walk. In an educated society such as ours, people will obviously take any version of ignorance as an insult. Um, there's probably no point in history that our no other point in history that our society has been more educated than it is now. Access to knowledge is open and free for everyone, right? We have the collective mind that is the internet. We have more knowledge and resources available to us than we've ever probably had in collective human history. Um, and so when we talk about this ignorance, we talk about this ignorance towards Christ and the things of Christ, that will obviously come as an insult. Um, <clears throat> but as the Apostle Paul said, people are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's 2 Timothy 3.7. Because of the fall, we are born with a natural inability to understand the things of God. Uh, Romans 1, 21 through 22 elaborates even further. Uh, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So in this, there is this sense in which, you know, our hearts are darkened, or as unbelievers, our hearts are darkened, uh, we profess ourselves to be wise, and yet, in so doing, we make ourselves to be fools. Um, again, going back real quick, I'll say it again because I think it's important. 2 Timothy 7, people are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So without Christ, there is no truth. 
You can search all day long. You can pour over all the things that are available to you. You can download all the wisdom of this world into your brain and process it, and yet it means nothing without Christ because that's not the truth. The truth is in Christ, and the truth is Christ. Christ calls the Pharisees blind leaders the blind, and with the abundance of information we have, it's like we are uh, ignorant and we seek out information from the ignorance of others mm -hmm. and it's this circular thing it's uh, you know it, with all the talk of ai these days I've, I've seen a couple headlines that said you know there's an inherent danger because the people who are supposed to be educating or training the ai are using ai to train the ai and there there's there's some inherent dangers in that mm -hmm. uh, and it's this is that circular thing yeah. we're feeding on ignor the ignorance of others and just puffing continuing just to puff up right. our own ignorance yeah yeah, you have uh, something I noticed in the world today is uh, in that verse you mentioned, the truth. Mm. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth. And earlier in, was that verse 15, it says, speaking the truth. In the world today, there's a philosophy that's going around, and you hear this every now and then. People say, this is my truth. You, and they speak mm. of individuals having individual truth, which is still, which goes back to humanism, what you were saying earlier, that everyone basically becoming their own gods, what Satan promised in the garden, what Satan wanted to do himself. But there is no, in, individuals can't have a truth because things were contradicted. The truth is just what it is, yeah. and it cannot be contradicted. It is just what it is. You can't have an individual truth. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, when we, what I have found in, in having conversation with those who don't believe, particularly those that hold to this view that, whether they would state it this way, that truth is relative. Is that you kind of have to you have to be patient, you have to be gracious. Otherwise, those conversations mean nothing and go nowhere. Um, because what you said is absolutely true. Like the truth is the truth. What I found is that sometimes people get really hung up in semantics, right? So it's like when, we, when people talk about their truth, they're talking about the truth of some of their experiences, right? And there is a sense in which, hey, I, you know, that wall is white. That is true, right? Or I did this thing and this person then did this to me in response. That can be true, right? But when we're talking about the truth, we are talking about objective truth, objective, objective higher level truth. And so when we talk about the truth as a personal experience, it's obviously we're not talking about those things. We're talking about the truth of Scripture. We're talking about the truth of Christ. And yet there's a, there's a sense in which the things of the spirit can only be discerned by the spirit. And so if those don't have the spirit, then you're, you're starting from a completely different place, obviously, than you would be with somebody who has the spirit. I say all that to say, too, is what we have to be careful of is becoming like the Pharisees in this. So I, d I didn't mean to be inflammatory by saying, like, those who don't have Christ are ignorant. I mean that in the strictest definition of that term. There is something they don't know right. that they need. I don't mean that inflammatory. And so... What we have to be careful is when we have the truth and we have the truth of Christ, it, that reality, that, that knowledge, that posture that we have should be one of graciousness and kindness to those, those who don't. If that knowledge and that understanding leads us to be unkind or hateful or mean to those who don't have it, then we obviously we don't quite understand it. Right. Um, but yes, I love, I love bringing, I love that you mentioned that because, um, we do live in an age where when people do speak of truth in higher level terms, it is a very sort of relative 
squishy thing mm-hmm. sometimes. Not always, um, but but most often it is, and so that's it's an important distinction. So. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're talking about, I guess, information, it's like I spent a lot of time thinking about thinking. And <laughs> part of what I was hearing you guys say, but sort of, and just to sort of join together, it's like there's data or information. We get lots of that. Yeah. And then, and then that can turn into knowledge, where you know things, like you can see how things are connected. But the Bible doesn't really talk about that per se as much as wisdom. It's like, well, what do you do? Yeah. And there's people who don't know as much as a lot of other people to make much better decisions and understand what's what through a different way of discernment and understanding. And we can pursue knowledge and information really to serve ourselves through that. And I think a lot of people will do that when you listen to debates or other, other pieces. And kind of going back to what Victor was saying, is that with that knowledge, it's like when you generate it yourself, it's about you or how you perceive the world or how you want to perceive the world. There's nothing external to judge ourselves by except ourselves. So it's very self-serving. So when we're talking about like the truth, it's like looking in the mirror of, of the sense, not even a good mirror. Um, but there's, it's like you start with, with the person and build up to God, or you start with God and build down to man. And even the original scientists in universities came out of um, like monasteries and where they were studying the creation. It's like once we started, just like Adam and Eve, traded places where we studied ourselves or it's weird to God. It's like the juxtaposition of that gets all turned around. And so we gain knowledge. We have no wisdom. Yeah. We make terrible decisions. Yeah. And we don't know what truth is because it's our generation. We generate it just like AI. It's not even authentic anymore. It's a perversion. Yeah, wisdom comes from God Himself, and God Himself reveals Himself in His Word, uh, and His wisdom through the Word, which is why the Word is so important. Which is why it's it's absolutely crucial um, to our lives as believers, because the Word was God, and with God, and the Word what you know. Excuse me. This is important. This is a central point to start from. So yeah, I, I had some subpoints. We're kind of maybe running out of time a little bit. I'll just kind of run through them very quickly. So to talk about that ignorance, to break that verse down even further, there's a darkened understanding. Um, I found out that the, the Greek word for darkened means to make blind. Um, and it's something that's happened in the past with continuing results in the present. So being darkened in their understanding is an ongoing, continuing problem for believers. If we see that, see that word in the Greek as it was originally written, and its original intention is to make blind. Um, and I'm not an English person, but this person that I read from <laughs> says that it's the perfect participle form, which implies it's something that's happened not only in the past, but continues. Um, there's the other part that speaks about the alienation from God, uh, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. A man's understanding is judicially darkened by a sovereign God when he willingly and willfully alienates himself from God, is willfully ignorant, and willfully hardens the heart. God confirms the choice that all men and women initially make. What's the other one? Uh, sorry, I'm getting 
lost in my notes here. Yeah, I think it was just those two. Um, so moving on to verse 19, shamelessness. So when unbelievers continue in sin and turn themselves off from the life of God, they will become shameless past any sort of feeling. They become insensitive and apathetic, unconcerned about the consequences of behavior. Uh, verse 19, I'm going to move a little quickly because I want to make sure we have time to talk about the newness of life. So hang on tight, sorry. <laughs> and then in verse 19, we see perversion. They have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanliness and with greediness. So a person with a reprobate mind can't reason, be logical, or receive the truth. Kind of goes back to what we talked about. The things of the Spirit can discern the Spirit. Without the Spirit, you cannot know the things of God. Um, he continually gives himself over and does so without fear of shocking anyone. He may indulge in all manners of um, sin. Paul said that such people pursue their evil with greediness. Um, another Greek word I looked up here. Greediness in this context means a lawful desire for the things that belong to others. So in this way of thinking, in this perversion, in this essentially old way of walking and thinking, not only is it pursuing the things that aren't of God, pursuing the sin, but it's pursuing it uh, from others. So that purity, that sanity, morality, that character, they want it from others. So they're pursuing it in a way that is greedy, right? Um, yeah. So I put a little note here to, to kind of wrap that part up. So this is, we're kind of concluding here this part about the old walk. Uh, Paul kind of concludes here that it's, this self-centered and useless thinking that leads to a darkened understanding and a hard heart. And that, in, in turn, leads to an insensitivity to sin and shameless behavior, which then leads to unblushing obscenity. They make a business out of bringing down and dragging others down to their level. But as we move into this new way of living, this new walk, uh, Ephesians 4.20 says, You have not so learned in Christ." So we are to have no part of this old lifestyle. Instead, we are to put on, excuse me, put off the former manner of life and put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So we have to stand as salt and light. Um, Jesus Christ purchased us at the cost of his own life. He has given us a new nature that is holy, undefiled, and sanctified forever. He's simply asking us to discard our old lifestyle and to take on a new one. All right, would somebody mind reading again? Um, Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so we're continuing on in this theme of, of the mind and thinking. Um, again, as I said before, this is kind of a critical part to this few section of verses, particularly as we sort of look at them in somewhat of a vacuum. Now, we've talked about the rest of Ephesians leading up to this, so I know we're not 
completely discussing this in a vacuum, but in my study of these few verses, my takeaway was that how a Christian thinks that mindset is very important. And so as uh, Paul said in Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Paul, excuse me, Peter even calls it a pure mind um, in his letter as well. So just as we talked about sort of the four characteristics of that old walk, I want to quickly go through what I found to be the four characteristics of this new walk that we see in verses 20 through 24. The first one is that we see a Christ-centered life. We are no longer controlled by a self-centered mind. We don't learn from ourselves. We don't generate wisdom or, or intelligence or knowledge from ourselves, but we learn from Christ. Christ acts through us. He loves through us and serves through us. The lives that we live are not ours, but Christ living in us. That's what Galatians says. Philippians 2 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ himself said, You should not, excuse me, you should do as I have done to you. Also, real quick, I'm realizing that whatever uh, online Bible I was using, the translation seems to be uh, maybe something older and not what I normally, there's a lot of yees in here. So, there you go. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, so Philippians says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Ye should do as I have done to you, John says. We are to love as Christ has loved us, as Ephesians says. First John says, He that saith he abideth in Christ ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. So this old way of walking is walking in the vanity of his own mind. So if we're to put that old walk away, put that old way of life away, if we're walking in the vanity of our mind, then in the newness of our mind and in our new walk, we should be walking as a person who walks with their mind on into Christ. Any thoughts there? I'm going really fast. I don't want to cut off any conversation. The second of the four things that I saw on this um, new walk is a knowledge of the truth. Can somebody read 2 Corinthians 11.10? And then can somebody else read 1 John 5, 20 and 21? Right. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. So the truth of Christ is in me. So there's this knowledge of the truth. When we walk in the new way of life, there is a knowledge of the truth. The truth of Christ is in me. Who has 1 John 5, 20-21? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So in this new way of walking, we have a knowledge of what we call the truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ himself. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So there's this knowledge of the truth that comes when we walk in the newness of life. Which is interesting. Just, there's a number of 
Old Testament passages that talk about those who worship idols becoming like the idols, mm -hmm. non-thinking, non-speaking things. Yeah, It's the opposite when we worship the true God. He, Christ, fills our mind. Our mind is his. We begin to think with actual truth. Verse 22, put off the, uh, excuse me, put off concerning the former manner of life of the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So what I put as the sort of the third marker or this third characteristic of this new way of life is this sensitivity to sin. Uh, Christians know uh, what it means to be corrupt and to see the result of lust. That's because we are sensitive to sin. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. True believers mourn over their sin. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, in this newness of life, in this new way of walking, there's a sensitivity to sin. A true Christian, a believer, somebody who's been regenerated, who is in Christ, will acknowledge his sin because he is sensitive to it. Think about Romans 7, when Paul talks about, um, uh, in verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Um, he wasn't expressing... Um, like concern or the sensitivity over an isolated experience. It was body of death, something he lives in, right? So it's not just this isolated experience or moment. He's talking about um, his sinfulness like as a problem, as, an, as a not an isolated thing, but as a way of being, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Um, so there's that sensitivity to sin there. And then lastly, a renewed mind. So if you look at verses 23 through 24, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. When you become a believer, God gives you a new mind, but you must fill it with new thoughts. Philippians 4, 8 says, whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, whatever things are just, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And so because we have this new mind in Christ, we have this renewed mind, uh, the old mind can't even begin to fathom or seek or understand or want or desire these good things. But as Philippians says, whatever things are true, honest, just, good, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, set your mind on these things. And so we have this renewed mind and these new thoughts. We also have new attitudes. So put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So instead of having a reprobate, greedy, unclean mind, we have a mind filled with righteousness and holiness, and that characterizes the way we live. Now again, we don't live that way to earn salvation. We don't live that way to earn any sort of vainglory. We simply live that way because the Holy Spirit works in and through us, and that is a result of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So again, that is not only an outcome, but it is the generator of, right? So going back to kind of what Ron said is, there's 
There's not this willful generation of this new way of living. It only comes through the Holy Spirit. It's not something we could ever understand on our own. It's not something through the power of our flesh we could ever willfully create in us. It is because of the Holy Spirit. And as we said earlier, even with the Holy Spirit, even in this newness of life, we still find ourselves trapped in a body of flesh. And so as Paul says, you know, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Why do all the things I want to do, I don't do? So we still live in a fleshly body that will sin, but we are not identified or marked by that sin. We are marked by the righteousness of Christ, which he's imputed to us. We can walk in this newness of life because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, We should fill our minds um, with the good things found in the scriptures. Uh, We should live in a manner worthy of our calling. Um, I did have a few loose thoughts there as well. Um, Let's see. I think I may have already kind of gone through them, but one of the ways in which we change, right? So let's talk about this newness of life. There is this sense in which when we put on the new self, take off the old self, there's a way in which we look, we act, behave, whatever. Um, one of the ways that that happens is we talked about sort of the internal means of the Holy Spirit regenerating us, changing our hearts and minds and that. Um, another is the uh, sort of the external means and what we would call sort of the ordinary means of grace. Um, the preaching and the teaching of the word is one of the ways in which God uses um to mature his people and to bring about that transformation. So not only would I say that uh, reading your Bible is an important thing to do, if you love Christ, you love his word, you love him, but also um, those ordinary means of grace, being in the body, fellowshipping with each other, um, spending time hearing the preaching and the teaching of the word, participating in the sacraments, these are means by which God uses to transform us. So when we talk about this change from the old to the new, um, we know that ultimately, as we said, that there's the Holy Spirit that drives that, but we have a sort of a responsibility to participate that in some way. And so it's not just completely like, all right, God's changed us. Now we just sit still and everything else kind of just happens to us. Right? So there's this weird balance. I know that can be, that can sometimes be a confusing subject or topic, but there is a responsibility on our part. And that responsibility is to seek out the ordinary means of grace, sit under the teaching, preaching of the word, participate in the sacraments, spend time in the word, spend time in prayer. These are not radical things. These are not um, legalistic burdens. These are, these are the things that God has given to us. These are the things that he promises through his words uh, will change us and will transform us. So they are important. And that's still all driven by the power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. even though we can't oftentimes decipher, oh, oh, that's definitely a spirit thing. This is just a Jeremy thing. Yeah. It's like, no, the spirit indwells us. Even when it's, man, I know I I know I should go to church today, but I just really don't want to. But I know I should. Yeah. You know, it's it's the spirit working in us to help us to know the right thing to do, even even when we don't feel like doing it. Yeah. Uh, or I, man, I would love to go. I can't wait to go to church today. It's a spirit thing. It's, but we oftentimes can't. Yeah. Don't know where, you know, how to decide, how to divide those things. Because yeah. we, sh- we should we shouldn't get lost in that. Yeah. Trying to divide it. Any other thoughts before we close? I think one of my favorite scriptures is it is He working in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. He makes us want to do it. He makes us able to do it. 
Obey. <laughs> Any other thoughts real quick? I just had a thought on the, uh, you mentioned the, um, the Romans 7 kind of language. Um, you know, where you don't do the things you want to do, etc. And I just want to, I know you don't mean to go there at all, but like we, we risk, you know, having that dualistic view that um, spirit is good and then, you know, matter of the body is, is bad. And we know that that's not the case um, because it's the same fleshly mind that is enabled by the spirit to then live in the newness of life. So there's something going on there, right? That's like beyond me. Um, but we, we look forward to uh, his return for that clarification where we won't have that sinful nature in us that would allow us to see Christ as he is uh, in that future time. There's an old philosophical bent to Josh's point that it, that assumes that, rightly assumes that there's something wicked about the flesh, but it desires to completely escape the body mm-hmm. and leave it to its destruction that it might be made. Uh, could be our only if it's stoicism or something else. I, well, I only got brushed up on it because I read the six page. What is it? Platonism. Platonism. Whereas us, we uh, we we understand that we are in warfare with. Our sinfulness, our flesh, but we have we look forward to the hope of having a glorified and renewed body. Yeah. So that we can rejoice in looking forward to being made complete. I got something when you uh, when you said uh, Ephesians or yeah Ephesians four eight you said whatsoever things are true, just, holy things like that. Um, it hit my mind that this is not just talking about the Word of God. It's saying there. Are there are truths that exist outside the Word of God. And like the Word of God doesn't talk about gravity, for instance, or whatever. But we can participate in those things because some Christians will say, well, you can only listen to certain music, certain things. It's got to be Christian music, Christian this and Christian that. And that's not what the, what the Word of God is teaching. It's saying that when you those things that are in the world that we find out are truths in the world, we measure them by the word of God. Uh, for instance, if you you can listen to uh, secular music, say like that music says a lot of things that are anti-God in it, or you're watching a show. Uh, my family gets upset because I'm always criticizing movies. You can watch the movie, but I'm looking, I'm saying, that's not true. That's not true. I'm trying to pick out what is true based upon what the word of God, my measuring stick says versus things and philosophies that are coming across these other mediums that are not true. And that's why the word of God is very important. Absolutely. Your, your uh, analogy of being a measuring stick is good because it is the, it is the standard by which these other things are measured. Mm-hmm. Well, if there are no more thoughts, I'll go ahead and close this in prayer. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for those that are here, um, just desirous to be in your church this morning, worshiping you. 
Thank you, God, for giving us a renewed mind, renewed spirit. Thank you that we can put off the old and put on the new. We ask that by the power of your spirit that you would help us to do that, help us to desire to do it, and um, just thank you again for how much you love us, how much you have, um, how much grace and mercy you've poured out on us. Um, thank you again uh, for each and every person here this morning. Thank you for your love for us. Um, help us to, um, to worship this morning. Help us to um, look to you and to be thankful and to be grateful for what it is that you've done for us. Teach us through your word this morning. And thank you again um, for all the many good things you've given us. We pray this in your name. Amen.